You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Caroline Hyde. What'd you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. We went into last weekend with another major jobs day. U.S. job growth picked up last month, along with worker pay, payrolls increasing by 559,000 in May, coming in below economist estimates yet again. A solid labor market recovery is clearly continuing, but the headline numbers continue to fall short of expectations. So we got some reaction from the White House about how they were thinking about the labor market data and if it would impact their agenda. Heather Boucher, a member of President Biden's Council of Economic Advisors, who formerly served as the president and CEO of the Washington Center for Equitable Growth, joined us. We started by asking her what the number one reason is for the gap between what a lot of people thought the labor market recovery was going to look like versus what it's looking like right now. Well, here's the thing, Joe. I mean, the numbers that we saw coming out today mean that we are on an upward trend, right? We've seen over 540,000 jobs created each month for the past four months. That's way better than the last three months of um, 2020 when we saw jobs created about 60,000 a month. So, you know, this is certainly an indication of a labor market that's moving in the right direction, especially when combined with the drop in the unemployment rate to 5.8%. And certainly in line with what many folks were expecting. But, you know, I think given, you know, the need to recover from COVID, getting shots in arms and all the things, we always knew this would be a bit of a bumpy ride. But this seems right in line with, you know, a a strong economic recovery. It, It does appear to be a strong economic recovery. And, yes, there is some asymmetry out there, Heather. There's also a lot of questions here right now about some of the policy prescriptions coming out of the White House whether more stimulus is needed, whether there should be some pullback in existing programs here. How do you respond to the general idea here that if we do add more stimulus to uh, the fire, so to speak here, that it could potentially create a situation where we maybe overheat the economy? Well, I think at this point, you know, the American Rescue Plan is it's out. You know, we've been sending checks out to families. The child tax credit um, benefits will start going out in July. And certainly all of the work that the administration has done to get money out there to make sure that those vaccines are being distributed and the work that we're doing to, to make sure that child care centers can stay running and get up and running and schools can reopen, 
all of that is certainly helping. I think moving forward, we need to make sure that the kinds of fragilities that we saw across our economy and across our society that were there long before COVID, that we start addressing some of those fundamental issues. But in terms of this recovery for the next few months, um, you know, we've got a lot of support going out through the economy, and mm -hmm. I think that that's going to do a lot of good. So walking it forward, though, you have the jobs plan, you have the family plan. How does that wind up creating jobs? I mean, we saw the labor force participation rate fall. So now you have to create more jobs and then get those people back in the workforce. How do those plans do that? Well, here's the thing. One of the things that became so crystal clear to all of us in the United States over the past year and a half was that if you don't have access to care, people can't get to work. Millions of workers are struggling with kids not in school and lack of childcare options. And so that's one of the core features of the American Families Plan is let's make sure that families have what they need so they can be successful and so that parents can fully engage in the labor force. And the jobs plan is going to make these historic investments in infrastructure all across the country, um, you know, making sure that we're shoring up the basic foundations that in too many communities are just crumbling. So those are both going to create jobs, they're going to improve labor supply, and they're going to help sustain a long, um, a long economic recovery that's going to see the kind of growth that's going to be, um, you know, drive American innovation and investment, you know, over the long haul. So there's sort of two pieces of the puzzle. Heather, there seems to be some debate still, obviously, about whether the expanded unemployment insurance is contributing to difficulty of um, um, uh, employers hiring workers. Why not lean into it and say, yes, we've set this new baseline for what you can make when you're not uh, able to find a job. This is creating wage increases. We saw it today. This is a good model going forward to start uh, boosting wages at the bottom end and permanently uh, give workers more bargaining power. Well, you know, those are such important issues. We do need to make sure that workers have more bargaining power, and we do need to make sure that when you're unemployed for no fault of your own, that those benefits are available and that they are consistent with, you know, uh, what the, you know, making sure that families have what they need during those times of unemployment. So these additional benefits were so critical because so many folks couldn't um, have access to work. You know, there's over 7 million jobs still missing from our economy, so these benefits remain important. And of course, you know, the president has made clear that, you know, thinking about um, uh, fixing the unemployment insurance system for the long haul is a part of the plans that he laid out, mm. um, you know, in the last couple of months. But, you know, I, I want to be really clear that, you know, we are really down a lot of jobs still. And yeah. so getting people back to work, um, you know, we've always known it's going to be a little bit bumpy, but we're right. moving in the right direction. Okay, we're moving in the right direction. Let's talk about, though, the labor force participation rate, which a lot of people are pointing to and saying it still remains stagnant. It still sort of harkens back uh, to some of the issues we dealt with coming out of the last financial crisis, the, the global financial crisis, and some of the challenges that the then Obama administration had in trying to really not only generate job growth, more importantly, generate economic growth. Well, we are seeing economic growth being generated, so that's, that's a plus. But, you know, one of the things I'll say is that when you look at the trajectory of job gains, this is much sharper. Um, than the recovery from the Great Recession. So we're already on a much faster path, and that's excellent. We need to make sure those supports for families are there so that they can get to work and stay employed. And again, that's a key part of what the rescue plan is doing, and that's, those are key goals of the families plan and the jobs plan moving forward to make sure that for the next time all of those supports are there. For the jobs plan, um, how do, what does it do to help sustain the growth in wages that we saw this month? Well, there's a few things in the jobs plan that do that. I mean, first, the jobs plan includes what's called the PRO Act, 
which would help make it easier for workers to um, organize and collectively bargain. So unions, that's one thing that's in there. But there's a lot of really critical investments, investments in infrastructure all across our economy. Those investments are going to um, create jobs over the next few years for workers in those sectors, and they're going to create uh, the foundation of economic activity in communities all across the country. Those communities that need those bridges that are falling down, those communities that need broadband, this is the core of economic vitality, is that infrastructure. And then don't forget, core parts of the jobs plan are about making sure that our economy is prepared to be competitive um, for the decades to come. So helping the transition to electric vehicles, that's going to both sustain jobs and create jobs. These are core pieces of our economic future that we need to be investing in. Uh, Heather, one area that surprisingly saw some uh, jobs decline is actually in construction, I think. And, you know, it's interesting. We, we hear a lot about these bottlenecks in the economy and shortages of lumber and shortages of windows and areas. And it stands to reason, perhaps, that perhaps some employers may not be hiring simply because, look, if they can't get uh, lumber or windows, then why get workers on the job, set, job site? Are there things the White House is doing or thinking about to ease those aspects of the economy so that uh, you know, potential employers have reasons to bring people back on the job? Certainly. You know, supply chains is something that the president has been um, concerned about, you know, for, for many years now. And certainly was something he talked about a lot on the campaign. We saw this during COVID. We didn't have enough protective gear because right. we hadn't paid enough attention to our supply chains. And now we're seeing it at the other end. So this has been an ongoing challenge. You know, the president has set out, um, you know, examining America's supply chains, looking at this as a, as a longer term issue, and is also committed to, you know, thinking about well, what is it that we need to do right now? Um, you know, many of these are likely to work themselves out, you know, in the near term, because again, it's, we're trying to turn an economy back on after a pandemic and yeah. getting everything running at the same pace is a little bit challenging. It's going to take us a few months, you know, to get things all moving at the same level. But certainly the president is committed to looking at that and has made that clear. Now this week, the housing market fever is finally showing signs of breaking. Mortgage applications falling 3% last week, while homebuilder stocks took a hit Wednesday as RBC Capital Markets warned that rising home prices could temper the housing demand and potentially pressure builders. So we spoke about it all with Ellie Wolf, the chief economist at Zonda, a housing data and research firm who tracks the housing market at a very granular level. And we started by asking her if she's seeing signs that this red hot housing market is starting to cool down just a little bit. Yeah, so good to talk to you guys again. And I think the way that you should look at the housing market right now is that it went from 150 miles per hour to 120. Okay. So it is softer than the past couple times that we have spoken, but it's still a very, very strong housing market. So with regards though, okay, it's a very strong housing market. A lot of folks uh, in this room uh, can attest to that. No names here. But I am curious, uh, Allie, when we talk about uh, whether builders are sort of rising to meet demand or whether they're still on sort of these elongated schedules where they just build a couple houses, sell them, and wait till they get the materials for the next couple and build them. Is that still kind of the playbook for a lot of these companies for the next foreseeable future? Yeah, so the answer to that remain is really both. So we do have builders that have bought a lot of land that over the next, say, six to 36 months, those homes are going to come to the market. And that's going to be them rising up to meet the demand that you're talking about. But we do still have the longer build cycles. We still have the issues that we've talked about over and over again, from the supply chain to the labor side to the government side. That's holding it back, holding overall building back. 
But an interesting shift that we're seeing is that the building costs have not come down. They're still just a huge pain point for the builders to the point that we're seeing a strategy shift now. So we have from, again, Zonda's division president survey, we have these leaders of home builders across the country, 36% of them that are saying they're shifting their strategy to build more specs, because at least if you're building a specs, you have a better handle on your costs before you go to market. What about prefab? Like, have those sorts of companies that they manage, has anyone played it well? Has anyone managed to hedge appropriately or managed to lock in prices that perhaps you haven't thought about? Yeah, so the prefab market is a really fun one to watch because in theory, it's this great idea. You're efficient. You're able to use the products really well. You don't, you, you can use recycled products. You can do it at all different times of a year. And that's a problem in some parts of the country when you have to slow down building as it gets colder or wetter. Uh, what has panned out at least to date is that there are some companies that do prefab well, but they're running into skilled labor problems and they don't have mm. factories to be able to build the homes quick enough anyways. So some solutions, but I think the interesting thing, at least from my research on prefab is they may be a little bit more efficient, but these homes are not necessarily going to be cheaper because there are other costs when you go to build homes inside as well. So another point that you make, which I hadn't heard many people uh, discuss before, but in your research, just the sheer that uh, cities are being taxed. The people who give a permit to say, okay, you're allowed to build homes on some new plot of land. There is only so much paperwork that they can process in the span of a day or a month or a quarter. And even that is emerging as one of the main bottlenecks in this area. That for sure is. And I know the National Association of Home Builders has data on this as well that shows that not only is it taking longer for those cities to work through those permits, but they're also becoming more expensive. So when we talk about the construction costs of how everything's going up, we've always talked about all the different things that you can think of easily. But it's also that that supply or the issue that you're seeing on the government side as well. So let's go back now to this idea, Ali, of sort of once we get past this. Let's assume we get past uh, some of these price pressures, whether it's the uh, lumber, whether it's the wages that they have to pay. If we get past this, do we return to some sort of normal seasonal cycle in the housing market? Or are there structural changes here that are going to stick with us for years to come? So a couple points to hit on. The first is from a builder's point of view, let's say that their costs have gone down. They are unlikely to drop their current prices. They may be smart with how they build homes in the future, but if they drop a price of an actively selling community and they still have people in backlog, meaning people that are waiting for their home to be built, that creates a vicious cycle. So we don't expect prices, at least for active communities to come down again, future, maybe. But the interesting thing that I think we need to watch is spring selling season. I'm sure you guys remember before 2020, there was the spring selling season that people would rush to buy homes before school so that they could get settled and they didn't have to move their kids in the middle of a school year. That wasn't such a big deal last year. In fact, we actually saw home sales continue really strong through the end of the year. I think that's going to make our comps really hard this year if we go back to a normal seasonal pattern. Also, Ali, I'm just trying to work out how much of the theorizing is becoming a reality as to who's staying in the suburbs who isn't who's coming back to the cities who isn't who's uh, we're only now really getting guidance from certain corporates coming mm. out as to whether really they're sticking to their yes you can work from home or not as the case may be how are you seeing these decisions actually impact the decision making process of those who are buying 
It's such an important question because we've talked before about how the ability to work from home is one of the reasons people have been willing to move further away. Before the pandemic, suburbs were already popular. It was just that 11 to 30 minutes from downtown versus the further out locations. When we look at the work from home trends, we had a, a client hire us to look into this and we went through each of their markets and we went through all the top employers and we looked at what are the top employers, to what extent have they come out and said what model they're going to do. And it did seem, at least from the markets we looked at, that the hybrid model is more likely here to stay. But if you still are going back three days a week when you thought you weren't going back at all, I think people will be a little bit more inclined to move right. closer to downtown, maybe don't need to be urban, but you still want to be in those close-in suburbs. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Now this week, Bitcoin gained some more legitimacy when El Salvador became the first country to formally adopt the cryptocurrency as legal tender. The country and its 39-year-old president are embarking on a big economic experiment with the embrace of Bitcoin. And naturally, the news broke out on Twitter. We got reaction from Nick Carter, the founding partner of Castle Island Ventures. Nick hosted a historic Twitter spaces and he started talking about Bitcoin. The only thing he talks about online, really. Jack Dorsey showed up and then the president of El Salvador joined to break the news right as the Congress approved the proposal. We started by asking Nick about the conversation we, he had with the president of El Salvador and to explain the main benefits of the new law. How will it help the country's economy and its people? Well, it was a fascinating time because the president, President Bukele, joined us on Twitter live as this law was being voted in. Uh, we could actually hear the, the clapping and the votes from the parliamentary chamber uh, to discuss with Bitcoiners on Twitter, uh, the merits of the law. Uh, the objective seems to be making using Bitcoin as a actual medium of payment, medium of exchange, much more frictionless in the country, eliminating all capital gains taxes, which is, you know, of course, a big impediment to actually using this thing as a currency, mm. uh, you know, it, potentially in service of making, uh, you know, Bitcoin based remittances uh, cheaper and, and less frictional, for instance. So that seems to be sort of the main thrust of the law. What can we extrapolate then uh, as far as what the future holds beyond El Salvador here? Do you think we'll see other, I guess, legitimate countries like El Salvador embrace this and other larger countries? Well, in, uh, following the Salvadorian news, a number of politicians in Latin America, many of them younger on the millennial side, signaled their affinity for Bitcoin as well um, and made noises about potentially introducing similar ideas. Uh, we'll see if any of that actually transpires. Uh, we know that Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, stablecoins have very high penetration in places like Colombia and Argentina. Uh, you know, 
Latin America is certainly no stranger to sovereign defaults or you know periods of high inflation or monetary repression. So we see high penetration there. There's certainly a class of policymakers that see an opportunity to gain favor by signaling their affinity. Uh, and uh, you know we'll, we'll see what happens. But this is the first. El Salvador is the first non-pariah state to really legitimize and legalize Bitcoin usage. Uh, in in sort of its intended way. Uh, so, you know, it seems like a, a big sea change, frankly. A big sea change that only though meant that we saw a 7% rally. You're still seeing Bitcoin in and of itself under pressure significantly off its highs that we saw previously in the year, Nick. Are you expecting the issue for El Salvador going forward is also the ongoing volatility within Bitcoin as well. Is at any point we expecting that to just reduce a little bit so we see it more regularly? used as a currency, not just by those that are suffering significant inflation or indeed seeing an issue with a hard currency peg? It's hard to say. Bitcoin's volatility is seen to be many as, as uh, you know, a natural consequence of the scarcity of the system. Of course, something like gold, which is, you know, similarly kind of a commodity fixed in issuance, doesn't evidence such significant volatility. But Bitcoin is still early in its life and, uh, you know, very patchily adopted globally. And also in terms of El Salvador, it's a very small country, uh, you know, uh, foreign exchange reserves in the single-digit billions. Um, the fund that uh, the President Bukele was talking about establishing, which would hold a position in Bitcoin, uh, he signaled that it would be in kind of the $150 million range, so smaller than many kind of crypto hedge funds. Uh, so while this does represent sovereign adoption, it's not sovereign adoption by the largest sovereigns just yet. Uh, so we'll see. But in as much as using Bitcoin as a medium of payment or a bridge currency, you don't necessarily have to have exposure to the right. asset for a long period of time in order to sort of take advantage of its, its nice properties. Uh, Nick, the Bitcoin community has a history of like sort of getting excited about certain people and then they break your heart. Uh, Elon Musk is probably the most prominent one. And then he sort of he stabbed you in the back. Are you worried that uh, the president won't have a commitment to Bitcoin per se? And next month it's like, and now we've asked the Ethereum Foundation to digitize health records and XRP to modernize our banking system. And then it'll just be like a bunch of crypto buzzwords in a few weeks. Well, what was notable about this bill that was passed was it specifically says Bitcoin. And all of the messaging is about the Lightning Network and about these payment systems built on top of Bitcoin. And there's relatively little messaging around cryptocurrency more generally. Mm. So the commitment in this case does seem to be regarding Bitcoin. Of course, who knows what's going to happen in the future. And in fact, there is going to be plenty of narratives out there around Bitcoiners consorting with you know, someone that is perceived by many in the West as an authoritarian uh, dictator. Uh, but any adoption of Bitcoin at the sovereign level is interesting and noteworthy. Uh, we don't shy away from that. There has been adoption of Bitcoin by other sovereigns that, uh, you know, are considered pariah states and nobody tries to hide that. So it's certainly interesting to watch this play out in real time. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. <laughs> 
making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Then we went from a Bitcoin true believer to a uh, crypto skeptic. I spoke with Senator Elizabeth Warren, the senior Democratic senator from Massachusetts, right after the Senate Banking Committee's hearing on digital currencies and blockchain. Senator Warren started with the hearing with some pretty harsh words for digital currencies, saying they failed to deliver on the promises of a more inclusive financial system. And I asked her if there is some specific regulation she has in mind that, in her view, would bring crypto under control. So this was our first hearing on digital currencies, and we had a chance to talk with experts, bring in a lot of senators around it. But the bottom line was that what's happening right now in cryptocurrency, like Bitcoin and Dogecoin, it's a wild west out there. And it makes it not a good uh, way to buy and sell things and not a good investment and an environmental disaster. So do we need some regulation around this? You bet we do. In, in your view, whose purview should this fall under? And when you say, okay, we need more regulation, do you have something in mind or like a, a sort of conceptual framework for how regulators should, uh, should approach this burgeoning space, which, as you say, kind of has a Wild West vibe? Well, right now, I think what we need to do is the next round of hearings and investigations. Since uh, these cryptocurrencies have gone everywhere, then that means we need to bring in the people who have different responsibilities. So when we're talking about the investor aspect, that people are buying Bitcoin for speculation, uh, you know, if you were buying stock for speculation, you'd be protected by rules against things like pump and dump. But not when you're buying Bitcoin for speculation. We need to talk with the SEC about that. On the other hand, when we're talking about the question about bringing it into our monetary system, and uh, banks uh, either holding Bitcoin, that becomes an issue that we need to talk about with the bank regulators. So there are a lot of different pieces to this. uh, And I think the answer that we saw today is that right now, our regulators and frankly, our Congress is an hour late and a dollar Mm. short. And we need to catch up with where these cryptocurrencies are going. Let's talk about the idea of a a digital U.S. dollar, the idea that someone could hold a digital dollar in an online wallet or in a a wallet on their phone in some way. Lots of talk about it. Still kind of unclear to me of if something like that were to be implemented, what the goal would be. What do you think about the idea of, say, a central bank digital currency? And and what do you think the, the purpose would be if the U.S. were to at some point launch one? You know, that's one of the things that came up in this hearing multiple times today. It's that I understand how a digital currency would work instead of the United States government printing dollar bills or minting coins. It would, for example, pay a social security check by just putting digital money in your wallet. But the question was, what is the problem it's trying to solve? Uh, Because as we all know, most of what happens today is digital in the sense that uh, my bank does not hold those dollars physically, right? It has, a, it has a number in a ledger. And when I transfer money to pay on my credit card, they make a transfer that happens electronically. So 
you really have to kind of think through this. On the other hand, we had some really thoughtful experts who were saying, you know, you may want to integrate this into other systems uh, for payment, uh, for international payment. And there are questions about whether or not the United States maintains competition, say, with China that's looking deeply into digital currency. Uh, of course, the Chinese want to be able to track all the purchases of uh, all of their citizens, something we're not looking to do in the United States. But I think the answer there is it's, it's on the front edge. And here's what troubles me, is that cryptocurrency, the private version, has, has swept the earth. Digital currency is not really out of the starting gate yet. Right. And so, so you've got this situation where we kind of need to figure out, is, are we going to try to give digital currency a little boost here? Uh, but we really need to keep an eye on digital currency while we're doing that. I want to ask you a question, and I think it actually applies both to cryptocurrencies and the idea of a national digital currency. And I'm glad you brought up China and the idea of, okay, a system to monitor everyone's transactions. Because right now, if you and I wanted to transact online, we would do it through, I don't know, PayPal or something like that, and it would be an entity that could look at it. Do you think private transactions should be preserved in some way? This is a thing that people worry about with physical cash disappearing, the idea of transaction privacy. Is this a value that you have and that in some way we should find a way to continue to allow that to exist in the digital space? So I understand the idea behind privacy, and I don't want the federal government tracking how I spend my dollars. On the other hand, think about the key feature of a cryptocurrency, and that is secrecy. And it's pretty clear right now that that secrecy really is helpful for drug dealers and for uh, uh, crypto warriors who are hacking into systems around the world and demanding ransom uh, because it's a secret way to make payment. Now, the United States has dealt with this traditionally by saying that what happens in checking accounts is secret until someone goes before a judge and gets an order to be able to look at a checking account. That means that checking accounts are not great ways to transfer money between drug dealers. They are not great ways to collect ransom. And this is one of the concerns about cryptocurrency. There's no equivalent to be able to say, okay, you can be private nearly all the time, but not so much that you've created a haven for the criminals. And just want to remind viewers and listeners, we're speaking with Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. Uh, Senator Warren, you know, another sort of theme that runs through all this, and it's, of course, a lot of talk in both actually progressive and conservative circles, frankly, is corporate power and particularly tech mm -hmm. corporate power and the power of the big four, Apple and Facebook. Do you think, um, you know, one of the things about digital currencies is they are these decentralized networks. And do you think that yep. this should be something that potentially you could be um, enthusiastic about the idea of these sort of like digital decentralized networks that aren't necessarily uh, under the control of any, uh, any one company. Wow, you took a turn I didn't expect so you to take there. I thought you were gonna go in the other direction and say, does it make you at all nervous if um, Amazon or Apple is collecting an incredible amount of private information, not only about your purchases with them, but every place you spend every single penny, that makes me really uneasy. 
and it makes me particularly uneasy because there's no consumer protection in any part of this. You know, right now, if you use your credit card, you and I both know that if you get scammed, the, the most you lose is 50 bucks, right? right? That if it gets lost, the most you lose is 50 bucks. Not so if you use a cryptocurrency, one of these, as you call it, decentralized, but we could also call it Wild West, no rules, no protection kind of currencies. And when you load the information of all your purchases with other information aggregation that we know Amazon is engaged in, that we know Apple has engaged in, then look at the power that's becoming concentrated in one company uh, and the ability to be able to exercise influence politically, economically, I, I, that really makes me uneasy. So a lot of people really are uh, uncomfortable with this level of uh, corporate power for all of the reasons you just described. It seems like the main tool that people talk about for going after it is antitrust, but it's not the classical sort of monopoly pricing power issues that you've just laid out. Is there a better tool out there in the toolkit to address what you've uh, identified than the sort of antitrust approach that is sort of commonly uh, taken here? So there are two ways to think about antitrust first. And one is to say, let's take antitrust back to its roots, where big is a problem. Mm. And it poses a threat economically, and it poses a threat um, uh, politically. So that's one part. Another is to say, maybe it's time to add to our antitrust laws to make sure that they're covering the kind of platform approach that has created uh, so much more concentrated power. But the other is to say, hey, regulators, get up off your duffs and get in on this. Uh, we need the SEC. We need the Fed. We need others who say, if you're using this like a currency or you're using it like an investment, then those agencies have a responsibility to step up and make sure that we have some basic consumer protection, that we don't threaten our entire economic system. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.